Chapter Two, Part One of Celebrated Crimes, Volume Three, Mary Stuart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dorothy Godfrey Smith. Celebrated Crimes, Volume Three, Mary Stuart, by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter Two. Part One. Among the lords who had followed Mary Stuart to Scotland was, as we have mentioned, a young nobleman named Chatelard, a true type of the nobility of that time, a nephew of Bayard on his mother's side, a poet and a knight, talented and courageous, and attached to Marshal Damville, of whose household he formed one. Thanks to this high position, Chatelard, throughout her stay in France, paid court to Mary Stuart, who, in the homage he rendered her in verse, saw nothing more than those poetical declarations of gallantry customary in that age, and with which she especially was daily overwhelmed. But it happened that about the time when Chatelard was most in love with the Queen, she was obliged to leave France, as we have said. Then Marshal Damville, who knew nothing of Chatelard's passion, and who himself, encouraged by Mary's kindness, was among the candidates to succeed Francis II as husband, set out for Scotland with the poor exile, taking Chatelard with him, and, not imagining he would find a rival in him, he made a confidant of him and left him with Mary when he was obliged to leave her, charging the young poet to support with her the interests of his suit. This post as confidant brought Mary and Chatelard more together, and, as in her capacity as poet the queen treated him like a brother, he made bold in his passion to risk all to obtain another title. Accordingly, one evening he got into Mary Stuart's room, and hid himself under the bed. But at the moment when the queen was beginning to undress, a little dog she had began to yelp so loudly that her women came running at his barking, and, led by this indication, perceived Chatelard. A woman easily pardons a crime for which too great love is the excuse. Mary Stuart was woman before being queen, she pardoned. But this kindness only increased Chatelard's confidence. He put down the reprimand he had received to the presence of the Queen's women, and supposed that if she had been alone, she would have forgiven him still more completely. So that, three weeks after, the same scene was repeated. But this time, Chatelard, discovered in a cupboard when the queen was already in bed, was placed under arrest. The moment was badly chosen. Such a scandal, just when the queen was about to remarry, was fatal to Mary, let alone to Chatelard. Murray took the affair in hand, and, thinking that a public trial could alone save his sister's reputation, he urged the prosecution with such vigor that Chatelard, convicted of the crime of Les Majestés, was condemned to death. 
Mary entreated her brother that Chatelard might be sent back to France, but Murray made her see what terrible consequences such a use of her right of pardon might have, so that Mary was obliged to let justice take its course. Chatelard was led to execution. Arrived on the scaffold, which was set up before the Queen's palace, Chatelard, who had declined the services of a priest, had Ronsard's ode on death read, and when the reading, which he followed with evident pleasure, was ended, he turned towards the Queen's windows, and, having cried out for the last time, Adieu, loveliest and most cruel of princesses, he stretched out his neck to the executioner, without displaying any repentance or uttering any complaint. This death made all the more impression upon Mary that she did not dare to show her sympathy openly. Meanwhile, there was a rumor that the Queen of Scotland was consenting to a new marriage, and several suitors came forward, sprung from the principal reigning families of Europe. First, the Archduke Charles, third son of the Emperor of Germany. Then, the Duke of Anjou, who afterwards became Henry III. But to wed a foreign prince was to give up her claims to the English crown. So Mary refused, and, making a merit of this to Elizabeth, she cast her eyes on a relation of the latter's, Henry Stuart Lord Darnley, son of the Earl of Lennox. Elizabeth, who had nothing plausible to urge against this marriage, since the Queen of Scotland not only chose an Englishman for husband, but was marrying into her own family, allowed the Earl of Lennox and his son to go to the Scotch court, reserving it to herself, if matters appeared to take a serious turn, to recall them both, a command which they would be constrained to obey, since all their property was in England. Darnley was eighteen years of age. He was handsome, well-made, elegant. He talked in that attractive manner of the young nobles of the French and English courts that Mary no longer heard since her exile in Scotland. She let herself be deceived by these appearances and did not see that under this brilliant exterior Darnley hid utter insignificance, dubious courage, and a fickle and churlish character. It is true that he came to her under the auspices of a man whose influence was as striking as the risen fortune which gave him the opportunity to exert it. We refer to David Rizzio. David Rizzio, who played such a great part in the life of Mary Stuart, whose strange favor for him has given her enemies, probably without any cause, such cruel weapons against her, was the son of a Turin musician burdened with a numerous family who, recognizing in him a pronounced musical taste, had him instructed in the first principles of the art. At the age of fifteen, he had left his father's house and had gone on foot to Nice, where the Duke of Savoy held his court. 
There he entered the service of the Duke of Moretto, and this lord, having been appointed some years afterwards to the Scottish embassy, Rizzio followed him to Scotland. As this young man had a very fine voice, and accompanied on the viol and fiddle, songs of which both the airs and the words were of his own composition, the ambassador spoke of him to Mary, who wished to see him. Rizzio, full of confidence in himself, and seeing in the queen's desire a road to success, hastened to obey her command, sang before her, and pleased her. She begged him then of Moretto, making no more of it than if she had asked of him a thoroughbred dog or a well-trained falcon. Moretto presented him to her, delighted at finding such an opportunity to pay his court. But scarcely was Rizzio in her service than Mary discovered that music was the least of his gifts, that he possessed besides that education if not profound, at least varied, a supple mind, a lively imagination, gentle ways, and at the same time much boldness and presumption. He reminded her of those Italian artists whom she had seen at the French court, and spoke to her the tongue of Marot and Ronsard, whose most beautiful poems he knew by heart. This was more than enough to please Mary Stuart. In a short time he became her favorite, and meanwhile the place of secretary for the French dispatches falling vacant, Rizzio was provided for with it. Darnley, who wished to succeed at all costs, enlisted Rizzio in his interests, unconscious that he had no need of this support and as, on her side, Mary, who had fallen in love with him at first sight, fearing some new intrigue of Elizabeth's, hastened on this union so far as the proprieties permitted, the affair moved forward with wonderful rapidity. And in the midst of public rejoicing, with the approbation of the nobility, except for a small minority with Mary at its head, the marriage was solemnized under the happiest auspices, 29th July, 1565. Two days before, Darnley and his father, the Earl of Lennox, had received a command to return to London, and, as they had not obeyed it, a week after the celebration of the marriage, they learned that the Countess of Lennox, the only one of the family remaining in Elizabeth's power, had been arrested and taken to the tower. Thus, Elizabeth, in spite of her dissimulation, yielding to that first impulse of violence that she always had such trouble to overcome, publicly displayed her resentment. However, Elizabeth was not the woman to be satisfied with useless vengeance. She soon released the Countess and turned her eyes towards Murray, the most discontented of the nobles in opposition, who by this marriage was losing all his personal influence. It was thus easy for Elizabeth to put arms in his hand. In fact, when he had failed in his first attempt to seize Darnley, he called to his aid the Duke of Chatelrault, Glencairn, 
Argyle, and Roths, and collecting what partisans they could, they openly rebelled against the Queen. This was the first ostensible act of that hatred which was afterwards so fatal to Mary. The Queen, on her side, appealed to her nobles, who in response hastened to rally to her, so that in a month's time she found herself at the head of the finest army that ever a King of Scotland had raised. Darnley assumed the command of this magnificent assembly, mounted on a superb horse, arrayed in gilded armor, and accompanied by the Queen, who in a riding habit with pistols at her saddle-bow wished to make the campaign with him that she might not quit his side for a moment. Both were young, both were handsome, and they left Edinburgh amidst the cheers of the people and the army. Murray and his accomplices did not even try to stand against them, and the campaign consisted of such rapid and complex marches and countermarches that this rebellion is called the runabout raid, that is to say, the run in every sense of the word. Murray and the rebels withdrew into England, where Elizabeth, while seeming to condemn their unlucky attempt, afforded them all the assistance they needed. Mary returned to Edinburgh delighted at the success of her two first campaigns, not suspecting that this new good fortune was the last she would have, and that there her short-lived prosperity would cease. Indeed, she soon saw that in Darnley she had given herself not a devoted and very attentive husband as she had believed, but an imperious and brutal master who, no longer having any motive for concealment, showed himself to her just as he was, a man of disgraceful vices, of which drunkenness and debauchery was the least. Accordingly, serious differences were not long in springing up in this royal household. Darnley, in wedding Mary, had not become king, but merely the queen's husband. To confer on him authority nearly equaling a regent's, it was necessary that Mary should grant him what was termed the crown matrimonial, a crown Francis II had worn during his short royalty, and that Mary, after Darnley's conduct to herself, had not the slightest intention of bestowing on him. Thus, to whatever entreaties he made, in whatever form they were wrapped, Mary merely replied with an unvaried and obstinate refusal. Darnley, amazed at this force of will in a young queen who had loved him enough to raise him to her, and not believing that she could find it in herself, sought in her entourage for some secret and influential adviser who might have inspired her with it. His suspicions fell on Rizzio. In reality, to whatever cause Rizzio owed his power, and to even the most clear-sighted historians this point has always remained obscure, be it that he ruled as lover, be it that he advised as minister, his counsels, as long as he lived, 
were always given for the greater glory of the queen. Sprung from so low, he at least wished to show himself worthy of having risen so high, and owing everything to Mary, he tried to repay her with devotion. Thus, Darnley was not mistaken, and it was indeed Rizzio, who in despair at having helped to bring about a union which he foresaw must become so unfortunate, gave Mary the advice not to give up any of her power to one who already possessed much more than he deserved in possessing her person. Darnley, like all persons of both weak and violent character, disbelieved in the persistence of will in others, unless this will was sustained by an outside influence. He thought that in ridding himself of Rizzio, he could not fail to gain the day, since, as he believed, he alone was opposing the grant of this great desire of his, the crown matrimonial. Consequently, as Rizzio was disliked by the nobles in proportion as his merits had raised him above them, it was easy for Darnley to organize a conspiracy, and James Douglas of Morton, Chancellor of the Kingdom, consented to act as chief. This is the second time since the beginning of our narrative that we inscribe this name Douglas, so often pronounced in Scottish history, and which at this time, extinct in the elder branch, known as the Black Douglases, was perpetuated in the younger branch, known as the Red Douglases. It was an ancient, noble, and powerful family, which, when the descent in the male line from Robert Bruce had lapsed, disputed the royal title with the first steward, and which since then had constantly kept alongside the throne, sometimes its support, sometimes its enemy, envying every great house, for greatness made it uneasy, but above all, envious of the house of Hamilton, which, if not its equal, was at any rate, after itself, the next most powerful. During the whole reign of James V, thanks to the hatred which the king bore them, the Douglases had not only lost all their influence, but had also been exiled to England. This hatred was on account of their having seized the guardianship of the young prince and kept him prisoner till he was fifteen. Then, with the help of one of his pages, James V had escaped from Falkland and had reached Stirling, whose governor was in his interests. Scarcely was he safe in the castle than he made proclamation that any Douglas who should approach within a dozen miles of it would be prosecuted for high treason. This was not all. He obtained a degree from Parliament declaring them guilty of felony and condemning them to exile. They remained proscribed then during the king's lifetime and returned to Scotland only upon his death. The result was that, although they had been recalled about the throne and though, thanks to the past influence of Murray, who, one remembers, was a Douglas on the mother's side, 
they filled the most important posts there. They had not forgiven to the daughter the enmity borne them by the father. This was why James Douglas, Chancellor as he was, and consequently entrusted with the execution of the laws, put himself at the head of a conspiracy which had for its aim the violation of all laws, human and divine. End of chapter 2, part 1 Recording by Dorothy Godfrey Smith